0: Amen. Great songs tonight, and that is great singing as well. Those songs just fit wonderfully with the message tonight. Take your Bibles and turn to Galatians chapter 3, please. Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3, and our verses tonight are part of an ongoing section, but we're going to dial into these verses here and I'll just give you some of what we've already covered and where we're going as well. But in, in Galatians 3 and verse 10 down through verse 14 is, is our main thoughts tonight. And the Bible says here, Galatians 3 and verse 10, "...for as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse..." For it is written, Cursed is every one that continueth not in all things that are written in the book of the law to do them. But that no man is justified by the law in the sight of God, it is evident, for the just shall live by faith. For the law is not of faith, but the man that doeth them shall live in them. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is every one that hangeth on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, and that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Now, we're working our way through uh, this epistle to the churches of Galatia, and we're in, and it was divided up into three sections, chapter 1 and 2, chapter 3 and 4, and then chapter 5 uh, and 6. And in the first two chapters, Paul is defending his apostleship, Paul is defending the gospel that he preached, that salvation is by grace through faith. There was a real war going on here because of the Judaizers who were perverting the gospel, who were troubling the churches of Galatia. And the churches of Galatia were moving away from the true gospel of Christ. And Paul says, I'm shocked that this is happening so soon. And in chapter 3, Paul says, who hath bewitched you that you should not obey the truth? And so chapters 1 and 2 are really related to uh, Paul defending his apostleship that it's not of men, it was given of God, and the message that he preached was also of God. In chapters 3 and 4, it's very doctrinal, and Paul makes the arguments and lays out for us one of the best in all of scriptures, uh, the, the truths concerning the doctrine of justification by faith. And then you get to chapters 5 and 6, and Paul gets to the practical side of How should we live then? If we are saved by faith and we receive the Spirit of God through faith, then how should we also then live as Christians, as saints of God, through faith? Now, chapters 3 and 4, like I said, are very doctrinal. And Paul lays out in great detail the doctrine of justification by faith, that salvation cannot possibly be from the works of the law. It is by grace through faith alone. Now, let me just stop right there, because when we get to this part where we say, okay, we're covering some, some deep doctrine, a lot of people just flip the switch and turn it off, and they go to sleep. And sometimes I think that can happen with uh, people who say, well, we already know this, and we've heard this a million times, and praise the Lord you have heard it a million times, if, if that were true. But praise the Lord you have. And the reason for that is because you ought to be able to uh, not only defend the gospel, not only defend the doctrine of justification by faith, but you ought to be able to give it to somebody else. And so I'm going to challenge you tonight, encourage you, don't flip the switch, don't fall asleep as we start to walk through some doctrinal things. In fact, I was just, this is it was a blessing to me, the last song that we just sang, Christ liveth in me, uh, is only because of the the grace of God. And that is a truth that should continually, continually cause the heart of the saint of God to rejoice and to be in awe and wonder of the fact uh, that we can know forgiveness of sins and that Christ lives in us. And as I was studying through uh, this passage tonight, um, a, a song came to mind. I was going to share with you the verses of the song as we get going, and the last song that we sang, I look across the page, and there's that song. I didn't ever look up the the number of that song. I just remember the verses and the words, and there it was right there in front of me on the page, and I'm just going to give it to you right now, and you probably didn't pay attention to the song that was next to the last one we did, but it's number 190 in your hymnal, and the song is, I Love to Tell the Story. And if you think of the words of the song, I love to tell the story, "'Tis pleasant to repeat what seems each time I tell it more wonderfully sweet. I love to tell the story, for some have never heard the message of salvation from God's own holy word. I love to tell the story, for those who know it best seem hungering and thirsting to hear it like the rest and when in scenes of glory i sing the new new song guess what it's going to be it's going to be the old old story that i've loved so long i read those words and i think to myself those who know it best seem hungering and thirsting to hear it like the rest is that really true because we're going to talk about some doctrine we're going to talk about the old old story we're going to talk about christ and what he's done for us and so many times we can just flip the switch. This is boring and turn it off. And sometimes people just relate it to the speaker. Oh, it's the speaker. It's the way he presents it. Hey, that might be true, but the truth of God should be way, way beyond what any man speaking could give. Amen? So let your heart rejoice in the truth tonight because it's a wonderful story. And I, was, I actually looked up the this song I love to tell the story and who wrote the song and it was a lady uh, Beatrice I believe her name is but it comes from a poem that she wrote that was in two parts and the first part was uh, some of it was taken to write another song Uh, and the, the song is the old old story that we also sing in our hymnal And part of the words of that song, uh, and by the way, she was going through a terrible, terrible sickness. And the thing that gave her, and she writes that the thing that gave her the most comfort in her time of trouble, in her time of sickness, was when somebody would just tell her the gospel story again. And you read the words in that song we sing, in any time of trouble, if you would be a comfort to me, tell me the old story. And the other part of it was used to write this song, I Love to Tell the Story. I just thought it was a blessing and it was encouraging uh, to understand again that there is nothing greater than the Gospel message, no matter how many times you hear it. Amen? And we ought to rejoice again in what the Lord has done for us. But then number two, we ought to be able to go and tell people. Amen? So, these verses that we're reading here tonight, verses 10 through 14, they're a continuation of the same thought that we began last week. And again, Paul is setting out to prove that salvation is by grace through faith alone, and that it cannot possibly be through the works of the law. There's 60 verses in chapters 3 and 4, and these 60 verses probably are some of the strongest writings that the Apostle Paul ever penned. You look at his other epistles, and none of them have the, have the, the force or the, um, I don't even know what the word is, behind them like, like Galatians does. And, and the reason is because Paul is fighting a battle, a battle for truth here. And Paul's opponents in this battle were these Judaizers, who had used every possible means to capture the churches of Galatia to the point that they had bewitched them. They had troubled them, and they were perverting the true gospel of Jesus Christ. And Paul Paul wasn't having any of it. And you can tell that with the force behind how he writes. And what we're reading here are Paul's arguments and his reasoning with them That salvation is by faith in Jesus Christ alone, and not through works of the law. And in these chapters, chapters 3 and 4, Paul gives six arguments for this. That salvation is by grace through faith. And we started this last week, and the first argument Paul gave was in verses 1 through 5 of chapter 3, and it was the personal argument. And where Paul says in in, in verse 1, O foolish Galatians... Who hath bewitched you that ye should not obey the truth, before whose eyes Jesus Christ have been evidently set forth, crucified among you? This only would I learn of you. Received ye the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are ye so foolish, having begun in the Spirit? Are ye now made perfect by the flesh? Have ye suffered so many things in vain, if it be yet in vain? He therefore that ministereth to you the Spirit and worketh miracles among you, Doeth he it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? And Paul gives the the personal argument here. Here Paul challenges the Galatian believers to consider their own personal experience with Christ when they were saved. And we covered this last week. Paul said, how did you receive the Spirit when you got saved? Was it because of the works of the law? Or was it because you believed on Jesus Christ? And so he says, consider your own experience here. This personal experience How did you get saved? Now, that's a great place to start, to get them to think logically. But experience cannot be the be-all, end-all. Experience can be counterfeited. Experience can be misunderstood. Subjective experience has got to be balanced with objective evidence. Because experience can change, but truth never changes. And so Paul, he starts there with the personal uh, argument here. Consider your own salvation, but he balances out the subjective experience of the Galatian believers with the objective teaching of the Word of God. And that's the second argument that Paul lays out. It's the scriptural argument. In verse 6, he says, Let me find it there, verse 6. Even as Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness, know ye therefore that they which are of faith, the same are the children of Abraham. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, In thee shall all nations be blessed. And this continues on down through verse 14, which is part of where we're going to be tonight. Paul lays out the scriptural argument, and so Paul turns from the subjective experience of these Galatian believers to the objective evidence of God's Word. And the reason I say that here is because this section, in this section, Paul quotes six different Old Testament passages to make the point that salvation is only by faith and not the works of the law. That's the way it's always been, even before the law was ever given. Since the Judaizers magnified the place of Abraham in their religion, Paul decides to use Abraham and his relationship to God as one of his witnesses for this truth. The first argument that Paul gives is that Abraham himself was saved by faith. Look at verse 6 again. Even as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness... Know ye, therefore, that they which are of faith, the same are the children of Abraham. He says Abraham himself was saved by faith. In verse 6, Paul begins by quoting Moses in Genesis chapter 15 and verse 6 to show that God's righteousness was placed to Abraham's account only because he believed God's promise. And he quotes Genesis 15, 6. And he believed in the Lord, and he counted it to him for righteousness. Now, if you look at verse 6, you see the word accounted in our text. It was accounted to him for righteousness. The word simply means to impute or to put to one's account. And so Paul says that Abraham's account was declared to be righteous in the sight of God simply because he believed what God said. And likewise, when the sinner trusts Christ's provision, God's righteousness is put to his account as well. And then even beyond that, the believer's sins are no longer on his account at all. Go to Romans chapter 4 with me keep your place and look in Romans chapter 4 and look at verse 1 Romans 4 1 what shall we say that Abraham our father as pertaining to the flesh hath found for if Abraham were justified by works he hath whereof to glory but not before God And what he's basically saying here is that if works could possibly save, then you know what? Abraham would have something to glory in. But he adds this phrase, but not before God. And basically what that means is not when God's viewpoint is considered, not when God's viewpoint is accounted for, we don't have anything to glory in. He goes on, he says, for what saith the scripture? Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Now, to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Now, listen to this. Even as David also described the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputeth righteousness without works, saying, Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven, and whose sins are covered, blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. So not only is the righteousness of God applied in a, in, on your account, but the man's sin is no longer on the man's account. Praise the Lord! Praise the Lord! So what it means is this. It means that the record is always clear before God. And therefore, the believer can never be brought into judgment for his sins ever again. Praise the Lord. And what does that mean? It means this. It means once you're saved, you're always saved. You can't lose it. Because it's all of God and none of you. There are people who believe that you can lose your salvation. If you could ever lose it, then it was never everlasting. It was never eternal. And God is a liar. And Jesus Christ and His provision is not sufficient. And I wonder, just wonder, for those who really hold the position that you could lose your salvation, I wonder if they were actually ever saved to begin with. I don't need that kind of salvation. God doesn't, when, when, when Jesus Christ shed his blood, it was finished, it was done, and he doesn't need me to try to keep doing good with the flesh in order to maintain it. Amen? Because I never could. I never could. And so Paul says, through the inspiration of the Spirit of God that blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. Now go back to our text and look in verse 7. So the argument here is that Abraham himself was saved by faith. It was his righteousness, God's righteousness was accounted to him because he believed what God said. But then look at verse 7, and Paul makes the application here. He says, "'Know ye therefore that they which are of faith the same are the children of Abraham.'" He makes the application here and he says that they which are of faith, in the same way as Abraham, those ones who believe and who are of faith are the actual or true children of Abraham. Now, understand it this way. The Jews were very proud of their heritage. The problem with them was that they thought that their heritage made them special in the sense that it guaranteed them eternal salvation simply because they were of the seed of Abraham. They were physical uh, Jews. The physical descent did not guarantee them spiritual life, nor does it today. And so Paul makes this argument that even Abraham himself was saved by faith, and therefore Know this, that everyone who is of faith, they are also the children of Abraham. Spiritual life. And again, physical descent didn't guarantee spiritual life, and it doesn't today either. And the application could be very simple. There are many that are confused about this in, quote, Christianity. They think that somehow salvation is inherited because dad or mom are Christians then so am i but this isn't true because each soul is accountable to God for himself for the sake of time let's move on i want you to look at verses 8 and 9 because paul moves on from this thought to another one. And the the next argument that Paul makes from Scripture here is that salvation is also for the Gentiles. Abraham himself was saved by faith, and it's the same today. And the second argument that he makes from Scripture is that salvation is also for the Gentiles. In verse 8 he says, "...and the Scriptures foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith." preached before the gospel unto Abraham saying in thee shall all nations be blessed so then they which be of faith are blessed with faithful Abraham and so here paul uses the word heathen the word heathen is simply it simply means gentiles and so paul is saying the scripture foresaw that god would justify the gentiles through faith And Paul quotes Moses again here. He quotes Genesis chapter 12 and verse 3. And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse them that curseth thee, and in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. Now, why did Paul do that? He did that to prove that from the very beginning of Abraham's relationship to God, that salvation was already promised to all the nations of the world, not just Jews. Jews. God preached the good news of the gospel to Abraham centuries before the law was ever given. So how could one be saved by the keeping of the law then? If that were true. You see the argument that he's making here? Therefore, the true children of Abraham are not those of physical descent, but Jews and Gentiles who have believed in Jesus Christ who was the promised seed. All who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. That's what he says in verse 9, the conclusion. So then, they which be of faith are blessed with faithful Abraham. The third scriptural argument that Paul makes is in verses 10 through 12. Here's where we're going to spend the rest of our time. And the argument is this, that the works of the law only bring a curse. All right, so what's the big issue? The big issue is that these Judaizers are trying to convince, and they have convinced, these Galatian believers that in order to really be saved, it's not only believing on Jesus Christ, but you also need to be circumcised, you also need to keep the law, you also need to do these works. But Paul's argument from Scripture is this. The works of the law, they only bring a curse, not a blessing. And look at verse 10. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is every one that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. But that no man is justified by the law in the sight of God, it is evident. For or because the just shall live by faith. And the law is not of faith, but the man that doeth them shall live in them. So, Paul is saying that salvation could never come by the works of the law because the law only brings a curse and not a blessing. And he quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 27 here. In Deuteronomy 27 and verse 26, the Bible says, Cursed be he that confirmeth not all the words of this law to do them, and all the people shall say, Amen. Amen. And so Moses says in the books of the law, cursed be he that confirmeth not all the words of this law to do them. And Paul is saying here, for as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse, for it is written, cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. So why is there a curse here? Well, first of all, Paul says in verse 10 and even in verse 12 that there's a curse and we're cursed because we, because we can't continue in them. In verse 10, he says, according to the Scriptures, For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. In other words, there's a curse because we can't possibly keep the law perfectly. In other words, the law demands this. The law demands that we keep all of them, every one of them, and we keep them perfectly, and we keep it perfectly all the time. But can anybody possibly measure up to that standard? You have to obey all the law. That's why James says, and if you want to turn over there with me in James chapter 2, James chapter 2. In verse 10, the Bible says in James 2.10, For whosoever shall keep the whole law, and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. For he that said, Do not commit adultery, said also, Do not kill. Now if thou commit no adultery, yet if thou kill, thou art become a transgressor of the law. And so James is saying, you keep the, you got to keep the whole law. But if you offend even in one point, it's as if you're guilty of breaking the whole thing. In other words, it kind of is like this. The law is not some religious buffet where you get to come up and you get to pick and choose whatever it is that you want and leave the rest. You could say, oh, I'm a pretty good person because you know what? I've never killed anybody. I've kept the law. But James says if you break it even in one point, you're guilty of all of it. It's as if you've broken all the laws of God. The law demands perfection. The law demands that all of them be obeyed, and they need to be obeyed all the time. So can anybody attain to the law's demands? That's what Paul is saying here. The law has impossible expectations that sinful men could never possibly attain to. Jesus, in His own words, go to Matthew chapter 5, and note what Jesus says in Matthew 5. To help us understand this a little more fully, because somebody could lay out the written law and say, Oh, I've kept that, and oh, I've kept that, and oh, I've kept that, and I do this, and I do that. Like the Pharisees. But Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, in verse 17, He says, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass... One jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. Jesus was the only one who kept the law perfectly. But then notice what he says. Whosoever, therefore, shall break one of these least commandments and tell, shall teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But who shall, whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And here, he, here notice what he says. For I say unto you, that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not kill, and whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of judgment. But I say unto you, that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whosoever shall say to his brother Rekha shall be in danger of the council. But whosoever shall say thou fool shall be in danger of hell fire. And he goes on to speak, uh, certainly here in the Sermon on the Mount, but the idea that's getting across here is, you might say that, you know, I'm a pretty decent person because I've never broken this law, and I've never broken that of God's laws. But he says, you know what, you may never have killed anybody, but if you hate your brother in your heart, you've already broken the law. Even your own thoughts condemn you, in other words. And God knows your heart and God knows your thoughts. There's no possible way that sinful men could ever meet the impossible expectations of the law. We can never attain to it. And so Paul says, Paul says here, listen, you need to remember and understand, first is he that confirmeth not all the words of this law to do them. And he says here back in our text in verse 10, for as many as are of the works of the law, you want, to, you want to try to keep the law? Okay, but you're under the curse because it's written that you don't continue in all the law, the things written in the law of the book, the law to do them, you fall under the curse. Isaiah 64 in verse 6 simply says, but we are all as an unclean thing. And all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. And we all do fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. All the things that we might consider to be good works are as filthy rags. And the conclusion is, you can't possibly keep all the law, and you fall under the curse. And here it is in verse 11, go back to our text. You're cursed if you try or attempt to be justified by the law. In verse 11, he says, But that no man is justified by the law in the sight of God, it is evident for or because the just shall live by faith. You can't be looked at as righteous in the sight of God. That's obvious, he says, because the Bible says that the just, those who are justified before God, shall live by faith. And he quotes Habakkuk 2.4 here where it says, Behold, his soul which is lifted up is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. And Paul's point was that nobody could ever live by the law because the law only kills. The law is meant to show the sinner that he is guilty before God. Go to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7, the law only kills. And it's meant to show the sinner that he's guilty before God. In Romans 7 and verse 7, Paul says, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. Nay, and I had not known sin, but by the law. For I had not known lust, except the law had said, Thou shalt not covet. But sin, taking occasion by the commandment, wrought in me all manner of concupiscence. For without the law, sin was dead. In other words, Paul says there was a time when, when I thought everything was okay. I was doing fine. I was living fine. I wouldn't have known what lust was unless the law had come and said, Thou shalt not covet. And when I started looking into the commandment, what I found was it worked in me or wrought in me all manner of sin. I found out how bad I actually really was because of the law. He says in verse 9, For I was alive without the law once. (laughs) I was doing fine. I'm living good. It's all fine. But when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment which was ordained to life, I found to be unto death. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me and by it slew me. Wherefore, the law is holy and the commandment holy and just and good. Was then that which is good made death unto me? God forbid, but sin, that it might appear sin, working death in me by that which is good, that sin by the commandment might become exceeding sinful. In other words, I see how rotten and wretched I really am because of the law of God. And there's no possible way I could ever measure up and keep the standard of God. The law, oh, it doesn't bring a blessing. It only brings a curse. And you could never possibly measure up. So how in the world could you ever be justified by the works of the law? That's why Paul says in Romans 3.20, Therefore, by the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified in His sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. The Judaizers wanted to seduce the Galatian believers into this system of legal works, but Paul wanted them to enjoy a relationship of love and life that was by faith in Jesus Christ. And Paul's argument to them is one that still needs to be preached today. And that is this, the law cannot justify the sinner. The law cannot bring righteousness to the sinner. Paul says in Galatians 2, in verse 16, he says, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ, Even we have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law, for by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. He says in verse 21, I do not frustrate the grace of God, for if righteousness come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. So in other words, the the law can't justify the sinner. The law cannot give him righteousness. He says the law can't give the gift of the Spirit of God. In chapter 3 and verse 2, he said, I want to know this. Did you receive the Spirit of God by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? The law can't give you a spiritual inheritance either. In chapter 3 and verse 18, he says, For if the inheritance be of the law, it is no more of promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. The law can't give you life He says in verse 21 of chapter 3, if the law then, excuse me, in verse 21, is the law then against the promise of God? God forbid, for if there had been a law given which could have given life, verily righteousness should have been by the law. The law can't possibly give you life. And it can't give you liberty. He says a bunch of that in chapter 4, which we'll get to those and cover those things. But the essence is the law can't do anything but kill. And that leads to Paul's next argument. If you look in verse 13, the argument that Paul makes here is that the works of the law bring a curse, but in Christ there is consolation. He says in verse 13, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, For it is written, Cursed is every one that hangeth on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. So he says, you want to keep the law? You're under the curse. you got to keep it all. you got to keep it all the time. You can't offend even in one point, but there's no possible way that you can, and that leaves you without hope. But there's consolation in Jesus Christ. And he says, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law. These two verses here really summarize all that Paul's been saying in this section. He says, does the law put people under a curse? Yes, it does. Then Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. Do you want the blessing of Abraham? You want the blessing of Abraham? That comes through Christ. The gift is given through Christ. And what he's saying is all you need is Jesus Christ. There's no reason to ever go back to law-keeping that could never save you in the first place. That's the argument he's trying to get them to understand here. In verse 13, Paul quotes Moses again. And he quotes Deuteronomy 21 verses 22 and 23, where the Bible says, If a man have committed a sin worthy of death, and he be put to death, and thou hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night upon the tree, but thou shalt in any wise bury him that day, for he that is hanged is accursed of God. Notice what Paul says in verse 13, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is every one that hangeth on a tree. And so Paul quotes Deuteronomy 21, 23, saying, For he that is hanged is accursed of God. Now, the Jews, they didn't crucify criminals. They stoned them to death. But in cases of shameful violation of the law, that body was hung on a tree and it was exposed for all to see. And that was something that was of great humiliation and great shame because the Jews were very careful in their treatment of a dead body. You can find references to that all through the Old Testament. But after a body had been exposed for some time, it was taken down and it was buried. And again, like I said, you can see examples of that in the Old Testament. What Paul is referring to, though, of course, when he refers to the tree He's referring to the cross on which Jesus died. In Acts chapter 5 and verse 30, the Bible says, The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom ye slew and hanged on a tree. 1 Peter 2.24, Who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sin, should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye were healed. You understand and you know. That by being crucified and dying on the cross, Jesus Christ bore the curse of the law for us. So that now the believer is no longer under the law and no longer under its awful curse. He says Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law. The word redeemed, it means to purchase a slave but it's the purchase of a slave for the purpose of setting free. It's possible to purchase a slave and still keep him a slave by making him your own. But that's not what Jesus Christ did. By shedding his blood, by paying the purchase price he purchased us in order to set us free, free from the bondage of our sin and slavery from it. The Judaizers... And what they were teaching would only lead others into slavery again. But Christ died to set men free. And that's why he says in verse 14 that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. The blessing of Abraham. What is the blessing of Abraham? It's justification. It's the gift of the Spirit of God. It's now ours through faith in Jesus Christ and what He has done. And so Paul's argument to these people is this. The law kills. The law condemns. The law enslaves again and again and again. And there is no hope in the works of the law. The only consolation that you have is in Jesus Christ. How did you get saved? Was it through the works of the law, or was it through faith in Jesus Christ? And we began this chapter with Paul saying, Who hath bewitched you? In other words, what, what, what fascination do you have with this legalistic religion that you would depart from the truth, that only leads you back into bondage and death? How much better to take God at His word and rest in His amazing grace We were saved by grace through faith and we must live by grace through faith. That's the only way to true blessing. I was thinking about songs and this song, Once for All, came to mind again. And the words are this, free from the law, O happy condition, Jesus Jesus hath bled, and there is remission. Cursed by the law, and bruised by the fall, grace hath redeemed us once for all. Once for all, O sinner, receive it. Once for all, O friend, believe it. Cling to the cross, the burden will fall. Christ hath redeemed us once for all. Free from the law, amen. Oh, happy condition, cursed by the law, bruised by the fall, grace hath redeemed us once for all. What an amazing story. What an amazing truth that we should never, ever, ever grow tired of hearing again and again and again. That Christ lives in you is an amazing thing only by the grace of God. In the last section of chapter 3, Paul's going to lay out his next argument, and that's the logical argument. And what we're going to cover is Paul reasoning with his readers on the basis of a covenant and how it works between men. But a covenant between God and himself is something far, far greater than any covenant between men, and it could never possibly ever be undone. So Paul's laying out these objective arguments, and he lays out these arguments from Scripture. He lays out an argument from a personal experience, and he's going to go on to, in your own understanding, make a logical argument and compare that to a covenant between God and himself. How much bigger and how much greater that can never, ever be undone. And so these are the directions that will go as Paul continues to lay out this argument for the justification by faith because of the grace of God. Amen? You're saved. You're saved. Rejoice in the Lord. He's wonderful. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for truth for doctrine. And if doctrine were not important, then we would not have the Word of God. And all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. And Lord, I pray that we would understand how sweet the message of salvation in Christ is again and again and again. And the longer we're saved, and the more that we understand it, the more that we hear it, or may it grow sweeter and sweeter all the time, as to just what You did on our behalf. What I possess because of Christ ought to compel me to love Him more. Thank You, Lord, for the time tonight. And we pray that You bless Your people. Draw us close to You. In Jesus' name. Amen.